Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. So everything happened. This was one of those weeks where the worst thing you could say is that the news would not get any crazier. By midday on Tuesday, we were pretty convinced the most bonkers story was going to be the anti-vaccine alliance that President-elect Donald Trump forged with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. But by the end of the day, CNN and BuzzFeed were breaking different aspects of a troubling intelligence community report that the Kremlin had compromising material on the president-elect. We will break down the details, but I'll warn you, there is nothing good to be said about this. Meanwhile, late Wednesday night, the United States Senate cast a series of procedural votes that have been hailed as the first move in eventually scuttling the Affordable Care Act. Not necessarily a surprise, mind you. The Republican Party has long been threatening to repeal and replace the bill. But after taking this first move, what are Republican lawmakers going to do next? Well, as it turns out, even they may not know. Finally, this week, the Senate began the process of holding hearings on Trump's various cabinet appointments. Leading things off was Trump's attorney general pick, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, who began the proceedings being dogged by his checkered past and ended up being dogged by a very unique rebuke. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Julia Craven, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, and Jeff Young. And here's what happened first. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly chronicle of America's colony collapse disorder. Uh, my name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. We have a very good show for you today because a lot of crazy things have happened. It was one of those weeks where you figure on Tuesday things the crazy is going to top out at noon and you forget that 4 p.m. is going to happen and it gets worse and worse and worse. But we're going to start off today with the discussion of Obamacare. You remember that? Obamacare. Joining us to talk about all that's going on with Obamacare is our pal Arthur Delaney. Hi. And uh, noted Obamacare expert and surly curmudgeon Jeff Young. Yo. So, okay, let's start with what happened on Wednesday night in the Votorama session. The the headlines all spoke about uh, how the GOP and the Senate had taken, quote, a big step to repealing Obamacare. Now, we've been through this, I think, numerous times. Uh, the the uh, the repeal plan has always been coupled with the need to replace it with a thing, and that thing is forever promised and never arrives. And so what kind of step was actually taken to, quote, repeal Obamacare last night, Jeff? Well, I have I have some good and bad news. Well, that's what I figured. Uh, and, and they're both this. This is very boring. But I will explain it very briefly anyway. It's procedural stuff, right? So in order to do step five, you have to do step one. And step one is to pass a budget resolution that has instructions in it that say we are going to repeal Obamacare. And, why, and That's what happened. And one of these things is called a Votorama? What, yeah. What a travesty. Yeah, right. Yeah. This <laughs> sort of weird Senate thing where everyone can just propose endless amendments and they stack the votes on top of each other and everyone votes, 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 votes. So at like one o'clock in the morning, technically on Thursday, uh, they passed the a budget resolution in the House. We'll follow. I don't know when. Probably won't take more than a couple of days uh, until they pass the same thing. And then it sort of starts the clock ticking for them to assemble the – Quasi-repeal bill uh, in what they call a budget reconciliation package, which for reasons that no one needs to understand, uh, is not subject to a filibuster in the Senate, so Republicans can pass it with only Republican votes and a simple majority. 
Okay, so let's talk about that part of it. What comes next? Because you know, last night there were headlines that were just like, "Oh, they they gutted pre-existing conditions." But you're saying well, that's all pre that's all procedural. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to downplay it, right? Because sure. this is a it, it is the first and necessary step toward the march to repealing the Affordable Care Act. Um, but nothing has actually happened. I actually, got a kind of annoyed. Thursday morning, looking at Twitter and all these people like, oh, they repealed Obamacare last night. Like nobody lost their insurance, you know, this week. Uh, yep. that, C- curmudgeon. That has not happened. And I, I, I think it's a little irresponsible of uh, uh, news outlets to frame the story that way because this is not over yet. Right. Right. Um, and not just because the process has to play out, but because the politics have yet to fully – What's the word I'm looking for here? Coalesce? Congeal? Yes. Yes. Congeal is a good way of putting it. Because so, it's gross. Right. And, and by the way, just the reason people talking about pre-existing conditions or whatever is that as part of the vote on this budget thing that the Senate passed Thursday morning, uh, Democrats put up symbolic amendments, which is a normal part of every budget resolution debate that ever happens in the Senate ever, which is the minority party puts out stuff that they make the majority vote for that makes them look bad. So Trump and other Republicans say, oh, well, we're going to keep the good stuff from Obamacare and just get rid of the bad stuff, which parentheses, that's impossible, uh, close parentheses. So Democrats go, OK, well, how about uh, pre-existing commission conditions? You're going to vote for that. And then they don't vote for it. And then Democrats go, hey, they voted against the pre-existing conditions. This is a lot of what I'm seeing on like celebrity Twitter today, people who sort of barely understand what's happening. And they're like, they voted against pre-existing conditions. It's not going to change anything. Um, <laughs> so coming up next. Yeah, right. So the so the next <laughs> the next the next stage in this procedurally in this matters is that so-called budget reconciliation bill, which can only deal with taxes and spending and not things like regulations, right? So you can't actually repeal all of the Affordable Care Act through this process. You can only take on the taxes and spending, but that's the guts of the bill. They raise taxes and cut Medicare spending to pay for more people to get health insurance. Right. So if you take away the taxes and you take away the subsidies and the money for Medicaid, then you're doing away with what most of us think of as Obamacare. Right. That bill, whatever it contains, uh, won't do away with those things right away. Uh, they'll stay in place for some period of time. They'll probably tinker around the margins so they can say that they got a hit against Obamacare. And when Trump comes into office, they can do some stuff through the regulatory process that will also weaken the law a bit. Um, but once that's done, however long that takes, then supposedly, according to these Republicans who've been saying the same thing for almost seven years, uh, they'll come up with some new, awesome, better plan that, as Trump says, somehow miraculously be better and cheaper. Which is a really terrific idea that somebody should have thought of before. Didn't Trump step all over their timeline for this this week? <sighs> Man, they are all of them all over the place. And they're doing this neat little trick, which is hard to um, translate, where everybody's using similar terminology. Repeal and replace. We'll do it at the same time. We're going to do it fast. We're going to do it quickly. It's going to be great. But Trump, when Trump, Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and like various rank and file members of the House and Senate say those things, they're all talking about different stuff. Right. Define fast. Define simultaneous. What does that even mean? They don't know. Because I have a theory. This has been my theory for a while. They don't have the guts to actually kick 20 million people in the ass and they're not going to do it. They're going to do something that that they'll say repeal Obamacare, but is actually a face saving, not big policy change this is a possibility i would not have um acknowledged a month ago right um part of part of it is just that the election just took me so by so so by surprise like everybody else that i was oh my god he won they're gonna they're gonna light the world on fire um (laughs) but i I mean i i I don't uh, give much credence to uh Trump or Republican leaders in Congress actually giving a crap about those 20 million people themselves. Right. But they might care about what it looks like. And I think some of what's been going on in Congress, you know, they've only been back for like two weeks. Yeah. And this thing is already falling apart. Right. Their plan to repeal it and then delay passing a replacement until later is already falling apart because I think that a growing number of lawmakers seem to be realizing what that would actually mean. 
right? Because they don't know or care about the policies part of this. Most most of the most Republican members of Congress, and that's just that's always been the case. This is not an issue that the party ever really cared much about until it had an Obamacare to hate. Right. right? Um, you know, they never proposed like big health reform things in the Bush administration, for example, or before that, because it just wasn't an issue their voters really care about. Except for giving old people pills. Yes. Right. Which. Great. OK, good. They needed that. Um, that's a topic for another day. But but OK. So now they're looking at. They I think a lot of them actually thought, oh, we can conservative our way to health reform. But you can't. You can't do anything like what the Affordable Care Act does and stay conservative because the Affordable Care Act spends a shitload of money to give poor people health insurance and also regulates big companies that sell insurance so they have to do certain things and can't do other things. That doesn't sound very Republican to me. No. Right? There's not some way to do it where it has extra more liberty, but everybody still gets to go to the doctor. It just doesn't work. And I think these guys are starting to realize that and realizing, oh, crap, right? If I keep my promise here, the inevitable result is going to be some number of millions of people who lose their insurance. And we'll talk about that, right? And reporters. And uh, this is one of my favorite things. So Ryan just had another thing out today, and they say this all the time, like, oh, the Obamacare, the deductibles are too big, which is true for a lot of people. But, but their a, plans would make them bigger. Yeah, a GOP plan that like emphasizes the ability to buy plans across state lines yeah. would inevitably become a race to the bottom, and you'd have like the same kind of like catastrophic care with high deductibles and surprise costs that, as the Kaiser Family Foundation found out doing focus groups with Trump voters, Trump voters don't want to see in their health care plans right. anymore. The Kaiser Family Foundation uh, actually impaneled focus groups with Trump voters, and they determined that the kind of Things they don't like in their health care plans, surprise costs, high deductibles, uh, catastrophic coverage that doesn't do much in the terms of like everyday health care coverage. A Republican plan that would valorize being able to purchase health care across state lines would create, would create a race to the bottom in which all those things that Trump voters don't like would become part of their health care reality. And it, go, it actually goes beyond that. On a philosophical level, I've been covering health care for like 15 years and change, right? One of the big Republican ideas all along consistently for philosophical reasons about what health insurance should look like is that it should have higher deductibles and more cost sharing so that patients become, quote unquote, better shoppers, which in theory would lower prices, right? Like if you were buying a car. I don't think that actually works in the healthcare market, but that's debatable. So it's not some accidental bug. Right. That like, oh, well, if you if you get rid of Obamacare and you want to make premiums lower, uh, the only way you do that is to make the insurance worse. Right. So that it costs less. It's that for years. And this includes Tom Price, the congressman who Trump wants to be health and human services secretary. He has a bill. Right. Um, that emphasizes this, quote unquote, skin in the game thing. Right. So. Part Another problem that Republicans in Congress have when they're talking about replacing Obamacare is that things they have identified as shortcomings, flaws, and failures of the law, such as the high deductibles for a lot of people, are essential parts of what they themselves have always proposed. And if you, if you make the deductibles smaller, you've got to make that up somewhere else. The reason the deductibles are high right, is so that the insurance company can keep the premiums lower because they're spending less – of your premium income on your medical care because you're spending more of it out of your own pocket. The money has to come from somewhere, right? Doctor, doctor bills, hospital bills, and drug prices are high. That's why we have insurance for it. Right? So, so inevitably, we're going to abolish health insurance and have the government just pay for all medical procedures. Man, the more I think about this, uh, I mean, I've always felt with with single payer that what what it would take to make that happen is for the entire middle class to also just be so disgusted with private insurance in whatever form that they go, fine, whatever, the government. I guess I'll give that a try, right? right? Um, because most of us have insurance from our jobs, and there's problems with that. And, in fact, deductibles are going up. And job-based insurance, too, when it has nothing to do with Obamacare, in fact, predates it. So you blaming the existence of deductibles on the Affordable Care Act is bullshit. But, um, but, but they are pretty big for some people. Anyway. So long as most of us have insurance through our jobs that works pretty well and that from what we can see in our paychecks doesn't cost us very much. Now, granted, any benefit you get is cash. You're not getting paid in salary. But uh, I don't see major change like that happening. 
However, there is a scenario you can easily imagine starting from right now where the Affordable Care Act gets repealed. Republicans put some half-baked piece of crap in place instead. Even more people are upset than are upset right now with the problems that the ACA has. And then Democrats go, well, you know what? We tried it with the market-based way. You guys didn't like that. There's really only one other direction to go with this. Right. So I have a theory. It's a crazy theory. Tell me what you think about this. So this. There's a term called catastrophic success. <laughs> I have a feeling that a lot of people in Congress throughout all of last year reckon that probably they're going to end up with Hillary Clinton as president. Mm-hmm. And probably their state of play on Obamacare was that they're going to keep on notching the bedpost with periodic repeals, telling their constituents, we hate this stuff. But now they got to do something. Yeah. And they're faced with the prospect of having to do something that comports with their promises uh, and doesn't leave this yawning gap between repeal and replace. So is it at all possible that they may do some kind of like cosmetic change to Obamacare, perhaps even fix it, call it Trump care, have a parade, take the credit, and that's how we resolve this matter forevermore? Yeah. You know, this is another thing that a month ago I would have said, no, ne- they'll, they, they'll never get away with it, right? Um but I now I'm not saying I think that's the most likely outcome. Okay, fair but enough. But I think it's on the list now. Yeah, I right? think it is too. Because I mean, like I, sort of, sort of like I said about it, another part of this a minute ago, as lawmakers begin to understand the implications of the path that they have started out on, which you just said could inevitably right. lead to single payer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but even in the shorter term, and they realize, wow, man, we can't actually keep the promises that we made. We can't keep them all because right? the numbers don't add up, right? And or it doesn't adhere to the principles that we say we espouse about the way the economy should work. Um, You could see a situation where they get rid of the mandate. They maybe shrink the subsidies or something like that. Deregulate the insurance a little bit, you know, um, and, uh, you know, get rid of the employer mandate, which isn't really doing that much anyway, because most companies that are large were already providing insurance to their workers in the first place. Right. Right. Um, You could do that. And. Remember that in the end, whatever replace is, assuming for the sake of argument there is a replace bill, and I'm not convinced there will be, honestly. Neither am I, yeah. Um, but if there is one, they need at least eight Democrats to vote for it, right? Uh, that's and right. And scaring them – that Trump's plan, as he said in his press conference this week, right? He was like, well, you know, there's a lot of Democrats who are up for re-election uh, in states that I won. So, you know, sort of threatening, like, we're going to use this against you. But I don't – I'm not really sure I see the argument there. They also won those states. Yeah. Well, that – yes, that's a good point. But so Senator Senator Democrat in wherever, West Virginia, I don't know, is up there uh, running and there's a Republican running against that person and Trump's in the state campaign for that person. And then and, – and, and the argument is what? We blew up the health care bill that his party passed and didn't know what to do next. <laughs> so vote for more. <laughs> so you better vote for us again. I don't understand how that works. Be, we had a parade. Yeah. You know, I mean, now, granted, never underestimate the cravenness of the purple state Democrat. Um, but still, you know, and I mean, and, 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 and you know, minority leader Chuck Schumer and, and over in the House, too, with Pelosi and her leadership team. They have, so far at least, gotten Democrats in line to say, we are not helping you do a damn thing until you show us your actual plan. And then, and only then, will we consider helping you make it better. That's a good point. All right. Well, uh, don't panic no. yet. Panic, but don't, uh, uh, but, but keep paying attention. But don't jump off a bridge. Yeah. Right. Panic. Okay. Panic all you want. Panic quietly in the privacy of your own home (laughs) with a bottle of whiskey and keep listening to us. We'll help out. Promise. Okay. Uh, uh, Jeff, thanks, man. Thanks for being here. Word. And uh, Arthur, thanks for being here, too. Uh, We have a really great show. We're going to talk about Russian shit next. So stick around. We'll be right back for that whole sordid mess. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. So this week, CNN reported that a dossier of memos alleging that Russian intelligence agencies possess, quote, compromising personal and financial information about President-elect Donald Trump existed and was in the possession of U.S. intelligence agencies who briefed both President Obama and the president-elect on their contents. Now, I want to be as precise as possible, so please bear with me through this rather lengthy preamble. These memos essentially contain what's known as raw human intelligence collected by an ex-MI6 agent as part of an opposition research op. It is important to note here that as far as the allegations collected in these memos go, they have not been independently verified. The sources of the material have not been identified, and given the fact that this probably all came from an MI6 agent's spy contacts likely won't be identified – And the Trump campaign has issued blanket denials. BuzzFeed subsequently published these memos. And you should know that their contents have been rattling around in Washington for some time. Various media agencies have tried to report these allegations out, most notably David Korn at Mother Jones. And it seems now that when Harry Reid was alluding to explosive information about Trump that the FBI had in its possession, he was referring to this. To run down the allegations briefly, it's alleged that the Russian government has been, quote, cultivating and assisting Trump for five years and possess material sufficient to blackmail him. Further, the Kremlin has been feeding Trump, quote, valuable intelligence on his opponents in an ongoing clandestine relationship between Trump's coterie and Russian spies. And yes, there's also the rather lurid story of Trump and some Russian prostitutes and some hotel room piss kink. Now, again, these allegations have been denied up and down by Trump's team in some instances, I must admit, rather plausibly. Some other brief details I'll mention before we begin. The material contained in these memos were independently brought to Senator John McCain's attention, who after a period of deliberation felt compelled to alert the FBI himself. A subsequent BBC report has corroborated the existence of this dossier and expanded upon CNN's report. Finally, it's been reported that the MI6 agent in question feeling that his identity has been compromised, has gone to ground, fearing for his safety. So with that, let's bring in uh, Zachary Carter. Fake news. Yeah, and our foreign policy reporter, Jessica Schulberg. So Jessica, this story is basically a shit twinkie, no matter how you take a bite from it, beginning with the fact that some or all of this might be true. It's troubling that the provenance of all of this was an opposition research job. It's troubling that this is happening as the president-elect and the intelligence community are locking horns with each other. And it's possible to have some rather dark contemplations about how this finally came to be brought to CNN's attention. So just to begin with, what are you most troubled by in this? And what do you think the American people should be bothered about? Um, Honestly, in terms of it's hard to say what I'm most troubled by in the actual document, because as you said, we have no idea if any of it or all of it is true. Um, If it is true, and and the broad thrust of the story is honestly the most troubling, which is the idea that our president-elect is in a position in which he could be easily blackmailed by an adversary. I think what's most troubling to me, aside from that, because that's a concern that we probably already had or should have had, I think what's also troubling is that it's likely that at least one or more of the allegations in this document are going to be proven as false. And if even one allegation is proven false, it's going to be that much easier for Trump to sort of wage this war he's been you know, having with the media and the intelligence community saying the media lies, it's all fake news, the intelligence community is out to get me, this is Nazi Germany. Um, and I think that more than hurting him, this will actually be used as sort of uh, something to validate those claims. Zach, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you when if you saw Donald Trump's press conference on Wednesday, I mean, he really laid in to CNN, and it was a reporter who had nothing to do with the uh, the, the coverage that um, people are questioning now. Um, but he, he also said that BuzzFeed would face quote consequences. Yeah, 
uh, and uh, and he, but he, he called CNN fake news. You don't he said you don't get a question because you're fake news. And I think what what troubled me the most was that you know I I think this term fake news is ridiculous, and I think it was ridiculous even when we were talking about PizzaGate um, and people spreading just obviously patent lies on the internet. I just don't think the term is very useful. Um, but what what bothers me is that is that I think CNN actually did screw up here. Um, I don't know. How you know? It's not the sort of thing that the, you should never you should never take anything CNN says seriously again. Because the fact is, news news organizations get stories wrong, or they they blur the line, or they they get too close to the line uh, every now and then. That's just part of reality. People aren't perfect, um, and the fact that they did, I think they did kind of screw up, um, has given Trump this excuse to 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 glorify himself and and to convince the public that anytime something bad happens it's it's just the fake news media going after them interesting enough today uh, elizabeth warren was questioning uh, ben carson at uh, at ben carson's confirmation hearing to be uh, to be the next hud secretary made a big point about trump's uh, 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 trump's family fortune and his businesses not being divested a couple questions later uh, 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 Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina said he wanted to preempt a fake news cycle based on what Warren had just said. Her questions were perfectly legitimate. Everything that she talked about about Trump's assets and them not being in a blind trust, that was all totally accurate. But Republicans are now just using this term fake news to dismiss anything they don't like. Wow. I, I would like to step in for a second and just make sure that uh, our listeners do have a sense of differentiation between what CNN did and what BuzzFeed did because um, – if you watch Trump's press conference, I've been it might supportive be hard. of what BuzzFeed did, but let's challenge my own premises here by talking about that. Well, I think we should start out by what, what Zach happened. said, and Zach said that he didn't agree with CNN. Um, I guess we're all in different camps here. I think CNN was correct. I think BuzzFeed was wrong uh, for people who aren't fully up to speed. CNN reported that there is this document that explains contains these explosive allegations. They didn't go into any detail. They didn't talk about the golden showers. They just said it exists. It's bad. If it's true, it could be used to blackmail Trump. And what was newsworthy, what made them report this is that intelligence officials told them that President Obama and President-elect Trump had both been briefed on its existence, which sort of indicates, okay, this is something we're worried about. This isn't just some rumor. And I'll put a pin in that. I want to come back to that, but go on. And then BuzzFeed uh, used that as sort of... uh, justification to just run the whole damn thing. So why do you think it's dangerous to run the whole damn thing? I mean, I would make the argument that uh, very powerful people have been talking about this behind closed doors for apparently a very long time now. And they've kept this information from the people they're ostensibly supposed to serve, either readers or constituents. So why is it bad to have this all out in the open? We know that people were trying to report on it. We know that this has been talked about. We know that probably decisions have been made based upon people who have possessed this dossier. And we know that it's probably affected the way they've covered any number of other stories. So why not let people know exactly what's been alleged? I I think CNN did the right thing there than saying that there's this thing. Let's summarize what it is. It exists and it it is influencing how people make decisions like what they brief our president-elect on. And that was an important newsworthy thing that stands up to further reporting and that benefits the American public. I think reporters come across uh, unverified claims all the time. I mean, do you think that it would be a service to our readers just to write out every single tip we get when we can't confirm it and say, this would be crazy if it's true. Some people think it's true. Some people don't. Make up the mind, your mind for yourself. I mean, that's the job of the reporters to sift through unverified allegations and report out the ones that they can say are true. Because it's like telling readers to make up their minds for themselves. How the hell are a bunch of readers supposed to make up their minds when dozens You don't think of- BuzzFeed drew a good enough circle around what they're reporting? I think they did, but I just don't see the point of putting it out there if you can't verify it. I mean, Ben Smith said we wanted to let readers decide for themselves. And my opinion is that if the intelligence community, if the FBI, if the New York Times, if the Washington Post, if political, if all these reporters couldn't figure out if it was true, then it just seems pretty irresponsible to just give it to anybody and say, well, you you guys figure out if you think it's true. All right. Well, let's go back to the material part of the document here Um, and and the the issue. You talked about how President-elect Trump and President Obama were both briefed on the existence of this thing. Is it even plausible that the intelligence community would actually bring this to the president's attention or Donald Trump's attention if they could not at least partially corroborate 
the facts laid out in the dossier. The fact that it went to the highest levels of government suggests that it's something they're taking seriously and believe is at least partially true. And again, that's why I think it's newsworthy to report that it exists. I think it's also something that even if they couldn't, uh, even if they couldn't confirm that it's true, the way Clapper put it, uh, the director of national intelligence put it last night in a statement as he said, we briefed them on it because it could affect matters of national security, which is a super vague throwaway statement. But it's it's basically saying like this is being spoken about enough behind closed doors. And if any of it's true, it could have such a tremendous implication on national security that you need to know it exists. Is it possible that there could be a, a legitimate intelligence agency uh, interest in this in this this document that that they might have a legitimate reason to want to bring this to the attention of of the president, even if the material in them is completely false. That it's still blackmailable information if it's not true. I think that's compelling. I mean, I, I, everyone should read Julia Yaffe's article in the Atlantic yesterday or the day before, where she, I mean, you know, she's from Russia. She she's covered Russia her entire professional life, and she wrote a really helpful story about how compromise this kind of idea of compromising information is how Putin rose to power using using embarrassing information about people is sort of what what allowed him to inherit the presidency and he's continued to successfully deploy it against his opponents. Uh, sometimes it was true. Sometimes he would set people up to have visits by prostitutes and then bug the room where such acts were occurring. And sometimes it was just a totally fabricated video. And in the end, it didn't really matter if it was true because it was enough to ruin them. So I think if the intelligence community could assess that Regardless of whether or not this is true, if the Russians can use this as a weapon, then yes, this is something that our president-elect should be informed of. Is it is it at all possible to suspect that the fact that all of this is coming out now is coming out as someone intended, that it's a distraction to something worse? <laughs> the distraction idea. Uh, I, I thought a lot about the timing because obviously a lot of outlets have been sitting on this. I think it was always sort of a matter of time until – people found a peg or a rationalization to publish at least some of it. I mean, Mother Jones alluded to it before the election. I think David Korn's rationale at that time would have been, we need to tell people that this at least exists before the election. It didn't appear to make much of a difference. Um, and then I think for CNN, it was sort of, we now have this concrete peg, which is that Obama and Trump were briefed on it. This is the day before his first press conference since July. This is, what was it, 10 days before the inauguration. I'm deeply suspicious that this story probably will not go away. I mean, more and more people are being briefed on it. There's more and more possibility that something else will leak. Um, there's more and more possibility that something else will be corroborated. Is this a black cloud that's going to hang over this now for a lengthy period of time? And as a follow-up to that, um, how does Trump take office with this relationship, this bad relationship he's developed with the intelligence community? <laughs> Uh, well, for the first part of your question, I think now that you have basically any reporter who wants to pursue this, uh, having access to this information, I think you will see little details of the report become confirmed or unconfirmed or verified or, or disproven. Um, we've already seen a reporter reached out to a, a baseball coach at USC uh, College in Los Angeles saying that Michael Cohen, who is allegedly in Prague meeting with Russian officials, was in Los Angeles for at least part of the time that the report says he was there. Uh, government officials have said that it could be a different Michael Cohen that the report was referring to. So I think we'll see little tidbits like that. That's one out. of the things that I, 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 when I alluded to that they defended themselves rather plausibly in some instances, right. that's a big one. There's right. also the fact that Donald Trump is a noted germaphobe and not the likely person to have prostitutes urinate all over his bedroom. But as to the second part, um, uh, what kind of relationship can we expect <laughs> Donald Trump to have with the intelligence community? It seems like it's been partially, if not irreparably, poisoned. It, it is very poisoned. What's really interesting is to look at who he's nominated to head the CIA, which is Congressman Mike Pompeo from Kansas. He just wrapped up his confirmation hearing. Um, he's extreme, extreme right wing, but in the more traditional sense. He's not especially aligned with Donald Trump. He sits on the House Intelligence Committee right now, which is supposed to be kind of the overseers of Congress, um, but he, or sorry, of the CIA, but he has more often than not sided with the CIA. He's criticized Dan Feinstein as acting against the, the, the interests of our country when she wanted to release the Senate torture report. Um, he thinks that Russia is this huge enemy. He wants to scrap the Iran deal. Um, so I think It'll be interesting to see how he sort of threads that line between being very allegiant to 
the CIA and then having to deal with Trump in his ear. Zach, how fucking great is it that we're now caught betwixt and between a megalomaniacal fascist president-elect and the deep state, essentially? Yeah, isn't it interesting that right before the election and immediately in the aftermath of the election, the line they heard from the Democratic Party about everything was, oh, my God, the FBI interfered and threw the election to Trump. And look, I think they had legitimate complaints about what Jim Comey did. Now the story that we're talking about is how the CIA, you know, for, for liberals is like, wow, maybe the CIA can save us from Donald Trump. I don't know. It, it The whole thing just seems very strange. And it, it seems like the... Um, the deep state agencies, the FBI, the CIA, you know, the the, the um, director of uh, what's there's so the many DNA. of these for, yeah, DNA, <laughs> DNA, DNA, yeah. DNA yes. the big boss. I must said DNA. <laughs> the DNA of the CIA. All, all of the big scary agencies, um, they all seem to be in a in a position of total chaos and complete, uh, uh, you know, com- a, a complete failure of having any sort of uh, hospitable relationship with either party at the at the top level. What's interesting, too, about that is, I mean, I I don't necessarily think that this specific document was leaked out by the intelligence community. I mean, there's so many people who had their hands on it. There was the the initial Washington, D.C.-based group um, that was commissioned to do opposition research for a Republican primary candidate, and then it was who they hired in the U.K. And just so many people seen this report that I think it's plausible to say it was a non-intelligence official who initially leaked it out. But you have just seen so many little micro-leaks. I mean, every time... Trump has a classified briefing. Someone talks shit on how he had no idea what was going on and Flynn was just arguing with them the whole time or he doesn't go to briefings. Um, And I mean, the last time you really saw this was when Porter Goss was the head of the CIA and there was just so much distrust um, between the Bush administration and the CIA and there was leaks were constant and Porter Goss was gone within just over a year, I believe. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be a very leaky presidential administration. If you want to know the truth, if you want what? to leak to us, you know where to find us. <laughs> yes, uh, please leak to us. Leak all the time, um, but not in the golden shower. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. Yeah, we've had our fun with the golden shower. <laughs> it's unnecessary. Yeah, we've had our fun. It's kind of, it's we had not had a single golden shower joke. <laughs> yeah, we did. We, we did okay. Ourselves. We did okay. Yeah, I mean, it burned it all off the day it happened, so it's good. It's we're good to go. Like I said, the story is a shit twinkie, and um, that's even grosser. Yeah, it's good, so much grosser. The good news, the good news for Donald Trump is that he will, if he can, if he can get along with the intelligence agencies, he'll soon be able to develop compromise on all three of us. So, Yay. fun times Great. ahead. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be right back. Maybe. Bye, guys. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. We're back. This week kicked off confirmation of Rama in the United States Senate, as those who have been nominated to various cabinet posts by President-elect Donald Trump have come to Capitol Hill for their confirmation hearings. And one of the hearings that really ended up resonating in the news cycle this week was the one that involved Senator Jeff Sessions. Sessions is Trump's pick to be our next attorney general, but he has passed that so checkered you can make a season's worth of dress shirts out of it. And to add to the drama, Sessions' hearing included something we've never seen before, a Senate colleague, in this case New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, testifying against him. Joining us to talk about what went down in Sessions' session is our pal Julia Craven. Hello. Julia, it's so great that you're here. I just wanted to start, let's just talk. Jeff Sessions. Who is Jeff Sessions? Jeff Sessions is a senator from Alabama. He was elected to the Senate in the 90s. Um, And while he was in Alabama, he started his political career as a U.S. attorney, and then he became attorney general of Alabama. He was, you know, sort of born in the pre-civil rights South. He was born in Selma. Uh, And when he was an attorney in the Southern District uh, of Alabama, he was appointed that position by Reagan. And in 1985, 
before he became to the came to the Senate, he was involved in a voting rights case that is of some concern to people today. Yeah. So in 1985, he unsuccessfully prosecuted um, the black civil rights activist, Albert Turner, his wife, Evelyn, and another person whose name I cannot remember. And so it was over disputed absentee ballots um, from a black voter drive. Why is it that this particular case continues to resonate today? It seems like such a small matter. So pretty much what Sessions did was he went after civil rights activists who were trying to register black people to vote or just get them to be able to vote absentee so that that way their votes could be counted, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the big issue here is because the claims weren't very substantiated and he still went after them and he failed. And was he was he at the same time prosecuting other examples of voter fraud? Did he treat white voters equally? No, he actually did not go after um, some cases of white voter fraud. There's also uh, sort of these accusations involving a, a, a black assistant attorney named Thomas Figures. Uh, can you walk us through that? Yes. So when Sessions was up for his federal judgeship in 1986, one of the prominent voices against that was Thomas Figures, who had worked as his um, assistant U.S. attorney. and Figures basically testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee that Sessions had called him boy. Mm. And when they were going after two Klansmen who had beaten and um, hanged a black teenager from a tree, Sessions tried to persuade Figures to drop the case, allegedly. Now, he has this kind of weird uh, history with the Klan. Um, my understanding is that the the quote I heard is that he thought the Klan was okay until he learned they all were smoking pot. And it was like, well, to my mind, that's maybe one of the least objectionable things the Klan was actually doing in the South. Um, but time and time again, I saw people try to sort of like tag him as someone with a past of racism and racial animus. And he always deflected it, and he had help from his some of his Senate colleagues in deflecting it. But the real story is it is it is it is complicated and 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 nuanced as Sessions wants it to be. I don't think so. I really know. I think it's pretty clear that this man has a track record of blocking civil rights legislation. He doesn't believe in hate crime le legislation. He feels as though the Voting Rights Act intrudes on states' rights um, when. A certain section was um, struck down from the Voting Rights Act in 2013, the section that um, made it so that states with a history of racial discrimination could not change their election laws without running it by the federal government. Pre-clearance, they right. call it. Yeah. Right. So when that portion was struck down, he called it good news for the South. Oh. <laughs> okay. I was a little so, pointed. <laughs> so this isn't someone who th – there's not – there's only so much nuance you have here. <laughs> so a guy comes to comes to the appointment with this past baggage. Do you have any confidence that this is a guy who's going to enforce laws uh, in keeping with, you know, the typical standard, which is that franchises should be expanded. Voting rights should be expanded to different people. Immigration, while we definitely can all agree, good people can agree on what constitutes fair process of immigration as far as, you know, who gets to enter the country and when, uh, that we don't apply these policies with any kind of racial animus in mind. What is there anything in Sessions' passage that suggests that he's capable of, like, really making a clean break from his past and being a fair and neutral arbiter in these kind of cases or even be willing to bring uh, – prosecute cases in, in which the, uh, the, the, the recipients of the, the benefit would be, you know, people of color? All we have right now is his word. Yesterday during his confirmation hearing, he was very adamant that he – one, he said that those allegations against him were false, and he was very adamant that it's not about his personal beliefs. It is it is about the law. Um, however, while you could take his word for it, you also have to consider his record. The With the position of attorney general, he has a lot of influence. Maybe he can't necessarily – so the Justice Department doesn't necessarily oversee immigration. That's Homeland Security. Sure, sure. However – he can 
persuade law enforcement agencies to um, to go after undocumented immigrants. He could also, you know, take some funding from immigration courts. There, so he still has influence in those areas. And if he doesn't support DACA or if he doesn't feel as though um, if he doesn't feel as though there should be a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, then that's something that we have to be concerned about. And as our own Elise Foley reported on this show some time ago, immigration courts are already uh, typically very short-staffed and underfunded. The one down in Atlanta is especially uh, known for uh, being completely inept. Um, let's talk about the uh, testimony that was offered to uh, on Wednesday by uh, Cory Booker from New Jersey and John Lewis from Georgia. Um, you listened to it. Uh, what what kind of things did they have to say about it? It's it's interesting to me that those two men talked uh, because they represent sort of a real generational divide uh, and their perspective on the civil rights movement. Obviously, Lewis steeped in it from the beginning. Booker, a real more of a sort of beneficiary figure, hoping to continue to 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 carry that torch but you know, the generational divide is really really very interesting to me so tell, tell talk us talks about what those two men uh pointed out in their discussions today mainly they just pointed to his record um and so what stood out for me in John Lewis's testimony was that we have to keep in mind that we need an attorney general who is going to continue this work someone who is going to expand voting rights someone who is going to make sure that police officers who violate the civil rights of citizens are held accountable for that. Um, and so his his um, testimony was, it was a little bit more big picture, I feel, um, as far as like what the future holds and how we have to continue this work. Whereas Booker's was a really passionate appeal to the committee that you can't do this because it's going to undermine all of the work that has been done and the work that we're trying to continue. Um, one thing about Sessions that I think is important is that he has actually broke away from a lot of his Republican colleagues in Congress to kind of stall criminal justice reform. And this is bipartisan criminal justice reform. Right, yeah, yeah. No, it <laughs> so, was a major it was a yeah. major project among Republicans both the House and Senate to uh to reform cr- criminal justice to uh right. deal do away with uh you know some of the mandatory minimum sentencing that was going on, especially unwind some of the deleterious uh, effects of the ongoing drug war. Um, right, but to be to be fair to Jeff Sessions, um, he did work to get the um, sentencing disparity between crack and cocaine changed. Oh, well, that's... So uh, <laughs> he's also done that. Points to Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Um, I feel like one of the things that's really kind of underscored here by both the election we just went through and the potential that Jeff Sessions is going to take over this agency uh, from Obama's appointees um, and also the Supreme Court rulings that have happened in the past few years is that this is we're entering a real dire period of time as far as voting rights go. Uh, the sort of draconian type of laws that a state can put down to keep people from being able to register to vote, they can be very vast and very complicated, and they can be fairly finely tuned and targeted toward just keeping uh, minority voters away from the polls. Um if we don't have a Department of Justice, and you know it's important to understand that the Department of Justice is independent and they have people working at all levels, uh, but the Attorney General does largely call the shots. We don't have a Department of Justice that's going to robustly protect the voter franchise. Uh, what, where do we fill in that gap? Is there a role that you think the media can play in literally helping people register to vote? I don't know if we can literally help people register to vote, but I do feel like it's our job to hold um, the incoming Trump administration accountable for every single thing that they do. And it's also important not to normalize anything that they do, because if you have an attorney general who is against the Voting Rights Act, he he thinks that it's intrusive. He thinks that it's overreaching, that the federal government is going out of their jurisdiction that is something that needs to be very widely reported anytime any instance of um, voter disenfranchisement comes up. And I feel like we have to pressure <laughs> the Justice Department to get involved on these issues because if people can't vote, that's just not fair. And it's not like that is a race thing. 
And I want to make that very clear that that is a race thing. By and large, but, I, mean, I can't think of a single voter ID law that went right. out of its way to 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 include white people in its but, targeting. But it should be bigger than that. Because you know how like some people don't want to see things as being racially motivated. But even if you don't want to look at it that way, you should look at it from this perspective of there are human beings in this country who deserve the right to vote and they can't. Uh, it's 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 a really tricky, thorny thing. I mean, when we 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 read stories about voting rights all the time, and they usually come in the form of either broad, big picture stories about what a state is doing to limit access to the polls, or we're hearing one-off sort of like you know the sob stories of someone who uh, usually old or poor, usually black. And they've been trying to register to vote and there are new rules and restrictions and they can't get a hold of the certificate or documents they need. And the state, sometimes, like in Wisconsin, uh, they aren't actually very forthcoming about what you need to bring to register to vote and they don't offer people much help. Um, I wonder if there's a way – to my mind, that's just basic. Like how do I do a thing? How do I go to uh, my, my county board and, and uh, register to vote? The how of that to me is basic service journalism, but it's it's hard to know how to do it on a scale that really matters. You know, here at the Huffington Post, we you know are centered mostly in a few big cities. We have reporters uh, out there in, in the United States, but they're few and far between. And it's a mammoth undertaking to try to figure out what every single county is doing as far as the rules go. Uh, but you know, more and more, I'm thinking about maybe. The media needs to be more of a clearinghouse of voter information. Yeah, because voting isn't easy, which is asinine. And we usually hear <laughs> about these 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 sad stories uh, when it's too late to do anything about them. You know, after when they were running up against deadlines. All I can say, listeners out there, if you encounter in the wild restrictions that prevent you from voting, you should let us know. Email at us at so that happened at huffingtonpost dot com, and we will continue to work on finding figuring out some way to perhaps overcome the fact that the Department of Justice may not be assisting us in this very, very important lift. Uh, Julia, appreciate you being here, man. No problem. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Julia Craven, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, and Jeff Young. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. And thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.